Okay, if you have a Bible, again, it's page 913, and you'll need to leave that open to Acts 5 so that you can follow along and see for yourself what we're saying. Let's pray together, and then we'll consider this passage. Father, uh, people speak all the time, but we need your Holy Spirit for that to be transformed into preaching. So please come by your Spirit in both what is said from my mouth and what is heard by your people's ears and understood by their minds and believed by their hearts and lived out in their lives. We pray that on account of this time, by your Spirit and your Word coming together, we might be emboldened to do a great many things that you want us to do in this time, in this place, in this world, for your glory and our good and the joy of all people. Come hear this prayer we ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In baseball, there's one pitch that all batters dread. One pitch above every other that any hitter does not want to see. And if there is one pitch that can strike fear in a hitter, it's the brushback. Now, if you don't know baseball, brushback is a fastball that is intentionally thrown high and inside just a few inches from your head. It's purposely thrown just a few inches from your head, so close that a batter will have to jerk back just to avoid being hit. Now, in the brushback, the pitcher is not necessarily trying to hit you, but he is, without a shadow of a doubt, trying to intimidate you. He's trying to scare you. Without saying a word, the pitcher is communicating something. He's communicating, that's my plate that you're crowding, and you better step back. If there's one thing that can get in a batter's head, that can rattle him, that can intimidate him, that can make him afraid, that can get him to think long and hard, think twice, before stepping back into the plate, digging his heels, and swinging again for the fences, it's a brushback. I say this because there's a pattern that's beginning to emerge in the book of Acts. And that is that whenever God takes new ground, whenever the kingdom of God or the gospel advance, whenever the church hits one out of the park, there seems to be satanic brushback. It's immediately met with resistance and opposition and pushback. We've seen this already, right? We saw it in Acts 3, when a man at the beautiful gate is healed. Silver and gold, I don't have what I do have. I tell you, in the name of Jesus of Nazareth, walk. And so this incredible miracle is performed. The gospel advances, and as soon as it does, Acts 3 is immediately followed by Acts 4. The same two apostles are arrested, Peter and John, threatened, charged not to speak of Jesus' name again. We saw this last week. Last week, we saw that the Holy Spirit produced this bold generosity in the heart of a man named Barnabas. Without fearing what would happen to him, he gave everything that he had, sold it, and laid it at the apostles' feet. And as soon as the Spirit was filling his heart with boldness and generosity, immediately we read that Satan is also filling the heart of a man named Ananias and Sapphira to deceive God and deceive man, and they wind up dead. Here's the pattern. The gospel goes forward, it's met with brushback, pushback, as a result there's suffering, and somehow through the suffering the gospel spreads even more. There it is. 
The gospel goes forward, it's pushed back against, there's suffering, and somehow through that suffering, the gospel spreads even more. You're going to see that happen again and again and again in Acts, including in our passage today. We see it in our passage today because when you look at the first section, the church of Jesus is knocking it out of the park. In 5 verses 12 through 16, when you read that and hear that, it would feel like the kingdom of God had literally just come down onto earth and touched down. People are being healed. People are being saved. The church is exploding in growth. And just as that happens, here comes a fastball, high and inside, straight from the pit of hell, aimed for the heads of the apostles. And yet, Seven Mile wrote, here's what's amazing about Acts 5. The apostles are not rattled. They're not intimidated. They don't shrink back in fear. Instead, they step back into the plate. They dig in their heels, and they keep on swinging for the fences. And when you hear what they encounter, you will be tempted to ask, now, how do they do that? How did these 12 men do that? And what you'll likely be tempted to conclude is it must be because they were giants among men. They were these towering, larger-than-life figures in church history. And yet the truth is, if you read anything about church history, you'll read that the first 300 years of the church was constantly filled with persecution, 10 waves of Roman persecution. And in that time, it wasn't just the apostles. It was ordinary men and women and children in pews and seats like this that went to their graves, even singing hymns as they were put to death. Throughout the church and throughout the world, even to this very day, men and women and children, like you, like me, have fearlessly gone to their death, even singing hymns as they died. And so we are left asking, what kind of courage is that? And how can ordinary Christians like you and like me Maybe even weak Christians like me and like you get that kind of courage. Well, this passage is going to show us. And if there's one thing this passage implores us, it'd be this. Weak Christian, don't shrink back, but stand firm and do what is right. That's what I want you to hear today. That's what I want you to begin to think in your own soul. As the Spirit of God reminds you of certain things that God might be pressing you to do, brother, sister, do not shrink back, but stand firm and do what's right. So here's what I want to do. I want to set the scene for you, and then I want to give you from this passage three reasons why you should not shrink back, but do what is right. So let me set the scene. It starts in 5 verse 12 all the way to 16. This is the passage and the scene that's set for us. It says this, Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. And they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and all those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. You can see why we're saying the church is knocking it out of the park. You know, 
You know the excitement we feel when we see even the slightest advance in gospel mission. When we feel the slightest momentum in our mission, you know how excited we get. If you have a coworker that is actually open to spiritual things with you, if you have a friend or a family member or a relative or a classmate, and they're actually open to talking about Jesus with you, you tell everyone about that. If, if we have an Easter egg hunt and it's sunny and people actually come, if Easter service is in the belly of Anne Frank Elementary School, and there in the auditorium, we sing of the resurrected Jesus and proclaim it from that school, we can't help but feel like God is doing something. The slightest momentum in mission, and we can't help but be excited. Can you imagine then what it would have been like to be in church in Acts 5? When someone asks you, how is church going these days? And your response would have been what, Paul, what Luke is describing in these verses. You would have said back, listen, at church right now, miracles are regularly being done. Did you catch that? That's not my words. Verse 12, Luke says, signs and wonders were regularly being done. We have some things that are regularly done seven, Sunday by Sunday at Seven Mile Road. If you come here, you know regularly you're going to hear people sing you know that regularly someone is going to stand and pray or read the scriptures. Someone is going to preach. Can you imagine if regularly, weekend by weekend, we came here knowing who's getting healed this week? You just came to church just expecting which disease is going to go away, which sick person is going to get healed. Miracles were being regularly done. Dr. Luke goes on to say not only that, the church was exploding in growth. Do you hear how he said it? More than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. Did you hear that? Even the phrasing he uses is wonderful, isn't it? More than ever, people were added to the Lord. It's not just Christians from one church checking out another church because they like it here. It's people who were being united to not even the church. Do you hear how Luke says it? Not even to the congregation, not even to the pews. They were added to the Lord. There were people who were being united to the death and resurrection and union with Christ. And, and Luke says it in a way of saying, more than ever before, multitudes. Meaning, at this point, Dr. Luke stops counting. Till now, he's counted. He counted all the way to say, Peter preached and 3,000 came to faith. Then this thing happened, 5,000 came to faith. At this point, he doesn't even count anymore. He just wants you to know, listen, I, I can't count that high. More than ever before, multitudes of men and women were being added to the Lord. I mean, things are so crazy in the church at Acts 5 that people are literally lining the streets, lying their sick on the streets, hoping that as Peter passes by, his shadow might fall on them that they might be healed. Can you imagine that? You know how when someone is not well, you get all kinds of advice about what you should try. Have you tried this diet? Have you tried this treatment? Have you gone to this doctor? Have you visited that practice? Can you imagine when people are saying to you, have you tried Peter's shadow? You need to try Peter's shadow. You have to try it, right? And so literally, now people are recommending his shadow. They are bringing people and lining the streets so that as he passes by, his shadow might fall on them and they might be healed. And all of Jerusalem is hearing, and so much so, that beyond Jerusalem, the towns around Jerusalem are coming. You want to know what kind of power does the church have? Well, this is what Jesus had said before he departed, Acts 1.8. 
And you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And Jesus' power has come onto this early church, and the gospel has saturated Jerusalem and is spilling out of Jerusalem just as Jesus said it would. The church of Jesus is taking new ground. The kingdom of God is advancing. The gospel is spreading The people of God are knocking it out of the park, and now here comes a fastball. High and inside, from the pit of hell. Verse 17 says, but, all the people were healed, but the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. We see now the brushback. The high priest and his cronies, we had already met them before in chapter 4. When John and Peter were arrested, we read that Annas and his son-in-law Caiaphas, who was the high priest, had arrested them. This, by the way, if you've read the New Testament before, if you know Jesus' story, this is the same Caiaphas that had arrested and tried and executed Jesus of Nazareth. And now that same Caiaphas wants to finish what he began and has arrested the 12 heads of this brand new Jesus movement. And with one swoop, he can end what began with Jesus of Nazareth. And so here these men are, arrested by the same man that tried and killed their master. And now, however, they do not shrink back. They're not rattled. They're not intimidated. Instead, they stand firm and they do what's right. How? Why? Well, three reasons. Here's the first. Brother and sister, this passage shows us, don't shrink back, but stand firm because God is always one step ahead of his enemies. Did you hear that again? Brother, sister, weak, timid, scared like me, Christian, Don't shrink back, but stand firm and do what's right, because God is always one step ahead of his enemies. I read of this author named Philip Yancey, and he talks about how in high school he joined the chess club. He said if you went and saw Philip at lunchtime, he'd be with the other nerds, and they'd be practicing chess and reading books like opening pawn moves, right? That's the kind of thing that smart kids read. So he began to master chess. He loved chess. He was better than all his peers, won tournaments. He was growing in chess. But then he put it aside for two decades, and then he finally picked it up again and found himself across from a master chess player. He said he played game after game after game. He tried every move he had ever learned, every move he had ever read. He thought every innovative strategy he could try. And he said against this chess master, no matter what he did, everything was countered. And not just countered. In fact, he played it so skillfully, his opponent did, that it seemed like all his moves somehow fed into some master plan of his opponent only to serve his own purposes. Like his every move was countered, and not only that, fit into the very strategy his opponent was playing. The scriptures would say to us, God is like a master chess player who is always one step ahead of his enemies. 
and not only one step ahead and not only counters the moves his enemies makes, but he's so wise and so powerful that his enemies' moves somehow serve his own purposes. That their steps and missteps somehow fit into the grand design of exactly what God wanted them to do. Exactly what God wanted to accomplish. Read the scriptures and you'll see that bear itself out. For example, if you went back to Exodus, you'd read of this paranoid Pharaoh. And in his paranoia, the Pharaoh pronounces this edict to throw all the Hebrew baby boys into the Nile. It's a strong move. In fact, you can almost feel the chessboard shake and all the pieces rattle. And yet, just when you think everything's done, that strong move ends up doing what? Initiating a series of other moves. One being a woman named Jochebed who takes her baby boy, who if it were not for that edict, would have raised that son in the slave yard like all the other boys. But because of the strong move that the Pharaoh made, somehow that serves some other purpose so that this baby boy is put on a basket and put down on the Nile. And if you know the story of Moses, this basket ends up floating to Pharaoh's house so that Pharaoh himself ends up paying room and board, feeding and educating the very man that would stand in the court one day and say, let my people go. He fed and trained and raised the very man that would undo him. And you can almost hear God in the pages of scripture whisper, check. You ever read of Haman in the book of Esther? Haman's got this plot. He's going to undo all the people of God. They're done. He's got the king on his side and he orders these gallows to be built. And he's going to hang his opponents on a noose. If you read the end of the story, Haman himself, through a series of moves and counter moves, ends up what? Sort of swinging from that very noose. His neck in that very noose, hanging from the gallows he had built for his opponents. And you hear the God of Scripture whisper, check. Here, the high priest has these apostles arrested, and not just arrested, put in the public prison so that everyone could see that the very leaders of this brand new Jesus movement is behind bars and disgraced and open to public shame. He's got them. Except verse 19 tells us that that very night, God sends an angel to open the prison doors so that when the morning comes and the council convenes, they send to find the prisoners, but they find that the doors are locked, but there's no one inside. And now they begin to scurry, and they begin to panic. They're baffled. In fact, verse 24 literally says they are greatly perplexed. Do you see the reversal? The powers that be are now sweating beads of sweat. They're biting their fingernails. They don't know what has just happened until someone comes running in in verse 25 and says, Look, the men whom you put in prison are standing outside in the temple and teaching the people. You put them down and put them in, and they're on the out, and they're teaching to everyone, so that by the end of the passage, this high priest tells them, you better not talk about Jesus to anyone again. And the passage ends, verse 42, and every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that Christ is Jesus. Do you hear what the, the scriptures are saying? You put them in prison, you put them under lock and key, and they're delivered. 
You threaten them, and they preach louder. You flog them, they leave rejoicing, counting it worthy to have suffered disgrace for his name. You kill them, and the gospel spreads. You cannot stop this thing. You can't end it. This is why Tertullian, the church father, said Christians are like seed. You mow us down and bury us in the ground, and we sprout and grow more. You cannot stop this. And Acts is saying throughout the pages of Scripture, God keeps saying, check, check, check. He is always one step ahead of his opponents. What else would you expect when their master and Lord was Jesus of Nazareth? When you cursed him, he blessed you. When you hit him on one side, he turned the other cheek. When you put him on a cross, he forgave you. When you killed him, he rose again. When you put him down low, he ascended to the highest place and sits at the right hand of God. And one day, this very God, who has been checking his opponent move by move, outsmarting him one step after the other, will one day tear the heavens open. And Jesus will return and heaven will shout, checkmate. And it will be done. And until that day comes... Brother, sister, do not shrink back, but stand firm and do what's right, because God is always one step ahead of your enemy and your opponents until the heavens open, until the game is done. We continue to sing this. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, God help us, we will not fear. We will not fear, for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. If you are in Christ, then you are in the God who is always one step ahead of his enemies, so don't shrink back but stand firm. Second, don't shrink back, but stand firm, because joined with this, God is unstoppable. Don't shrink back, but stand firm, because God is unstoppable. Would you jump down to the end of the passage with me for a second, and then we'll finish in the middle. He says here, at the end of the passage, you're going to see that the apostles don't shrink back. They're not rattled. They're not intimidated. They won't be derailed from bearing witness for Jesus. By the time they're done speaking, the high priest and his cronies are so mad, they want to kill the apostles. And as they're about to kill them to finish what they started with Jesus of Nazareth, all of a sudden, from the most unexpected man and the most unexpected mouth, you get the most stunning statement of truth. In fact, it's truer than the speaker himself is aware of. The speaker doesn't know how true what he's saying is. It's here in verse 33. It says this. When they, that's the high priest, heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. That's the apostles. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, Men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. Before these days, Theodos rose up, Theodos rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So, in the present case, I tell you, 
keep away from these men and let them alone, for if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. You see, the council is so enraged by what the apostles say, and we'll hear it in a minute, that they are ready to kill these apostles and finish this Jesus movement once and for all. They had taken care of Jesus of Nazareth. Now that they've got the 12 leaders of this new movement, they can finish this whole thing at once. And all of a sudden, a very respected Pharisee stands up, Gamaliel. In fact, as we read through Acts, we'll later discover that he's got a very prominent pupil named Saul of Tarsus. This is Saul of Tarsus' teacher. In fact, some scholars say that maybe that's how we even know what Gamaliel said. You remember, he ordered the apostles out, and so he has a closed-door meeting. Maybe Saul of Tarsus, his pupil, was inside that closed-door meeting and later told Dr. Luke what Gamaliel said. Either way, here's what Gamaliel's saying. When I think of what Gamaliel is saying, I think back to, I probably said this before, I think back to my high school pep rally. You remember your high school pep rally? I went to General Douglas MacArthur High School in Levittown, New York. We had the greatest pep rallies ever in the history of pep rallies, right? It was faces painted, bands and cheerleaders and signs, spirit week, homecoming game. We had the greatest pep rallies ever. We also had the worst football team in the history of the world, right? To give you an idea, I was on the football team, so that should tell you, right? We would have these unbelievable pep rallies, and yet homecoming was the same thing every year. We would get totally destroyed. So pretty soon, you realize that pep rallies were essentially a whole lot of hoopla for nothing. You know what Gamaliel's saying? Gamaliel's saying, listen, relax. We've seen these pep rallies before. We've seen these movements and somebody comes up and everybody thinks this guy is somebody. And then Rome does to them what Rome does to all the so-called somebodies. And then the whole thing goes away. It's a whole lot of hoopla for nothing. Right? This has happened over and over and over again. All the people of God are waiting for the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one. The new David that's going to come and kill the Goliath of their time. Rome is the Goliath of their time. So they're waiting for a Messiah that's going to kill their Goliath like David killed his. And then, what does Gamaliel say? You remember when Theodos rose up? Theodos rose up, and everybody thought he was somebody. In fact, he got 400 people to follow him. Remember, by the way, that's four times as many as the Jesus movement started with. There was 120 in Acts 1. Theodos had 400 people with him. And then Rome did what Rome does, and the whole thing dissipated a whole lot of hoopla for nothing and after him was Judas the Galilean and he too rose up and all the people called him the Messiah or the anointed one or here's Judas the Galilean the Christ but what happened to that movement eventually Rome does what Rome does and that whole thing dispersed as well and so what's what's Gamaliel's point his point is listen these things have a way of taking care of themselves you see, if this whole Jesus movement is another way of these man-made movements, then the Jesus of Nazareth movement will go the way of the Theodos movement and the Judas the Galilean movement. You don't have to worry of it. These things take care of themselves. And then Gamaliel surprisingly leaves 
a tiny crack in the door. He leaves this small crack in the door to say, now on the other hand, in the tiny infinitesimal, itty bitty, not probable, impossible chance that this thing is actually from God, well then, then this thing is unstoppable and in opposing it, you might actually find yourself opposing God. He had no idea how true his words were. You see, friends, Seven Mile Road, the truth is the Jesus of Nazareth movement should have died when Jesus of Nazareth died. You know how I know? Because the Theodist movement died. And the Judas the Galilean movement died. And Jesus should have joined the trash heap of all the other so-called messiahs that Israel had seen. And it would have been a brief pep rally. A lot of hoopla for nothing. Because Rome did to Jesus of Nazareth what Rome does to all the so-called messiahs. The only reason, there's only one reason, one and only reason why the Jesus movement stood while the Theodos and Judas movement didn't is because of one word, resurrection. That's it. Because they saw the one Rome put down come back. And because of that, where the Theodist movement died and the Judas movement died, the Jesus movement lived. Because he had come back from the dead. N.T. Wright, this scholar who writes a really thick book on resurrection, he says this. He says, we skeptics, we have it backwards. We'd like to say there was a bunch of people who really believed that Jesus was the Messiah, and so they made up the story of the resurrection. Mind you, even though no one did that with Theodos, and no one did that with Judas, and no one did that with the other so-called messiahs. No one went on and said, Simon by Agora was still the Christ. I feel him in my heart. No one said that. No one did that with the other movements. And N.T. Wright says, we have it backwards. We think they made up the resurrection because they were certain he was the messiah. In reality, they declared him to be the messiah because they were certain of the resurrection. They didn't make up the resurrection because they thought he was the Messiah. They declared him to be Messiah because they were certain of the resurrection. The resurrection is why they called him the Messiah. So here's what that means. Gamaliel was right. God is in this thing. And you, brother and sister, weak little Christian in Northeast Philadelphia, you may not feel particularly strong. You might be a mouse. But listen to me, nothing in the history of the world has ever stopped Jesus' movement. No government, no policy, no law, no empire, no principality, no doctrine, no rule, no, no power has ever stopped the advance of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And in your day, you might not know how to defend him to your coworker. You don't have all the answers that the skeptics at school ask you. You need not know how to defend a lion. He is true whether you know how to defend him or not. And he will last long past you as he has lasted long before you. And nothing in our day will stop him like nothing in the apostles' day stopped him either. 
Atheism won't stop him, and secularism won't stop him, and materialism won't stop him, and pluralism won't stop him, and skepticism won't stop him, and you not knowing how to answer in that moment will not stop the truth that Jesus and his gospel has God's stamp on it, and you cannot overthrow this thing. Gamaliel was more right than he knew. Brother or sister, weak though you may be, there is a lion behind you. And that means do not shrink back, but stand firm, because whether you feel it or not, God is unstoppable. Third and finally, don't shrink back, but stand firm by looking to Jesus, our hero. Don't shrink back, but stand firm because God is always one step ahead of his enemies and because God is unstoppable. And third and finally, because you can look to Jesus, our hero. Would you follow the story with me? We get the prison break in verse 19. Can I ask you a question? If an angel of the Lord busted you out of prison in the middle of the night in a hostile nation, right? So you're in this place where Christianity is not allowed. In the middle of the night, an angel of the Lord opens the door. What would you do? You would run as fast and as far as you could. You would head for the border as quickly as you could. This would be Shawshank Redemption, and you would be crawling through the sewer line to get to the border, right? Let me ask you what you wouldn't do. You would never hear, man breaks out of prison, found hanging out with the inmates in the prison courtyard, right? That doesn't make sense. An angel of the Lord is sent to set these men free, and then that messenger from God tells them, verse 20, go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. They do not run and hide. They stand and speak. The guards eventually find them. The high priest goes crazy. He says in verse 28, we told you not to speak of this man's name. And then you got to love it because it's Acts 1.8 being fulfilled. And he says, but you are saturating Jerusalem with this man's name. Of course they are because Jesus said, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and it will spill out to Judea and Samaria and reach the ends of the earth. And you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. We told you what? Not to bear witness, to stay silent, to be quiet. Somehow I wrote, I remember reading this book called The Insanity of God. If you want a great book to read, read The Insanity of God by Nick, Nip Ripkin. It's a book on the persecuted church. He had interviewed some 700 persecuted Christians throughout the world. I won't give you a lot of it now, but I'll tell you this. The author's contention in the book is that persecution is not the goal of the evil one. Persecution is a means to his goal. His goal is silence. That's why persecution exists. There's a very simple way to stop persecution. Just be quiet about Jesus. If you will be quiet about Jesus, there will be no persecution. There's a very simple option for Christians in all the persecuted countries. Just make Jesus a private and personal part of your life. A personal faith. You see, persecution comes because the believers will not stay silent. And if they will, there is no persecution. Which haunts us with a question. Beyond this day and this hour in these four walls, 
from Monday through Saturday, if we are silent about Jesus, it haunts us with the question, if, if Jesus is spoken loudly and boldly in here, but is silent Monday through Saturday because we have bought into the world and the thought that says your faith in Jesus is private and personal, that talking about Jesus is offensive because the ethics of the Bible are narrow and make you feel bigoted. If our desire is to be above all things accepted, do you know pitchers only throw brushbacks against batters that pose a threat? You're not throwing a brushback against a guy who poses no threat. Pushback only comes because the pitcher is intimidated. You might knock one out of the park. If he knows that you're not going to swing, there is no need for pushback. In fact, in this book, I'll read you one quote. He says this, speaking of us Christians on this side of the world. Why would Satan want to wake us up when he has already shut us up? Why would Satan bother with us when we are already accomplishing his goal? He will likely conclude that it is better to let us sleep. Peter and the apostles refuse to shrink back and be silent. Instead, they respond with a flurry of jabs and uppercuts. Would you hear what he says, 29? But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. For the sake of time, I won't go through all of it, but it would be worth your while just to read again what Peter says here. I mean, you can hear line by line him going jab, jab, uppercut. I mean, just hear it. We must obey God rather than men. By saying that, what's he saying? Obeying you would mean disobeying God. And disobeying God would mean obeying you, which implication means you, high priest, are at odds with God. You, the highest one in the land of all the people, the most religious person there is, you're at odds with God. And by the way, there's a secret in there how to get courage. They fought fear with fear. You know how you fight fear, fear with fear. They feared disobeying God more than fearing disobeying man. And as long as we fear man more than we fear God, we will stay silent. But when we are finally afraid to go, God, what would happen to me if I'm on odds with you? Then I'd be willing to be at odds with man. They fought fear with fear, a greater fear of God. They're saying, we can't obey God, man we must obey God. Then they go on to say, the God of our fathers raised Jesus. That too didn't stick well because Dr. Luke told us they were Sadducees. Sadducees don't believe in resurrection. So not only are you at odds with God, your whole theology is messed up as well. There is resurrection. Then they go on to say, whom you hanged by killing him on a tree, God raised him and made him leader and savior, exalted him to the right place. The Bible says, Anyone who hangs on a tree is cursed. You gave Jesus the ultimate curse. God gave him the ultimate vindication by raising him up and seating him at the high place. Then he says, to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. He's saying what? Caiaphas, the same man who's on trial here or leading the trial, in John's gospel had once said, it's better for one man to perish than for a whole nation to perish. He didn't know how true his words were. They're saying this Jesus did die so that the whole nation of Israel wouldn't perish, that they might have forgiveness of sins. And then he says, and we are witnesses to these things, so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. What's he saying? We untrained, secular working, nine to five, 
fishermen and former tax collectors have been chosen by God to be the apostles. And by the way, the Holy Spirit is in us because we obey him. Implication, you're not chosen and you don't have the Holy Spirit. No wonder, verse 33 says, when they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. Because Peter has just given jab after jab after jab. And so here's the question. What made Peter and the apostles so bold in the face of some people who they could tell wanted to rip their heads off? Because we know it couldn't have been something in them. You know why? The same man giving this speech had once shrank back when a little slave girl asked him, Do you know Jesus of Nazareth? And that man, not standing in front of Caiaphas who could kill him, a little slave girl, that man said, I swear to God, I have no idea who he is. How did that guy who shrank back with a slave girl now stand looking at Caiaphas who wanted to rip his head off and give this speech? How is he bold like that? One preacher said, there's, there's sort of two ways to be bold here for your life. Some people will tell you, you know what you got to do? You got to look within and you got to visualize yourself succeeding. You got to see whatever threatens you not happening, right? It's sort of like when adults tell children, there's nothing to be afraid of, except our kids know better. There's lots of things to be afraid of. They know that what you're saying is not true. There are lots of things to be afraid of. And so the advice would say, just visualize there's no threats out there. Sort of deny reality. See yourself succeeding. Let me ask you. Jesus of Nazareth, in this passage, in verse 31, when they call him leader and savior. Just look for a second. Peter says, God exalted him leader and savior. The word leader there is this word that's only used four times in the New Testament. Twice in Acts, twice in Hebrews. It's a word that actually in the Greek literature means hero. In fact, Greek literature used this same phrase of people like Hercules. In the Greek literature, Hercules was leader and savior. So what are the apostles saying? We are witnesses of our leader and savior, our Hercules, if you will, our hero, Jesus Christ. And they looked to him in that moment, and what did their hero look like? When Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, did he say, I'm going to deny all reality. I'm going to visualize myself succeeding. Did he say, bring the cup on. I'll drink it, no problem. Did he say, bring the Romans on. I'll take this cross. What did you see in the garden? You saw Jesus shaking like a leaf. In fact, it's so disturbing that we don't know what to do with it. You see Jesus scared. And that reminds us, courage is not being unafraid. Courage is what you do even though you're afraid. How did Jesus in that moment get courage to go through the scariest thing in the world and do what's right? The other place this word hero is used is Hebrews 12 verse 2. And it says, let us run the race looking to Jesus, the, found, the author and finisher or the hero of our faith. And then it goes on to say, who for the joy set before him, endured the cross, despising its shame. That means in the garden, Jesus didn't look within and find some kind of strength. He looked ahead for the joy set before him. Now, what is that joy? 
In part, there is one thing Jesus didn't have before his incarnation, his crucifixion, his resurrection, his ascension. The only thing that's on the other side of all that is redeeming you. You're what he didn't have before he came. You're what he will have on the other side of the cross. And for the joy of having you, he endured the cross and despised its shame. In this moment when they were scared to death, they looked to the one who was bold for them and it turned their hearts to be bold for him. So much so that when the passage is done, they get beaten up and they leave there rejoicing that they had been counted worthy to suffer disgrace for his name. They wore their bruises like badges of honor. Their scars were like medals of honor pinned to their chest. They were delighted to suffer for the one who had suffered for them. And only when you look to Jesus as your hero will you not shrink back but stand firm in that hard thing and do what's right when you look ahead to the joy set before you. So brother and sister, here's what I'd say. What is the thing that the Spirit of God is impressing on you that you ought to do but requires courage to do? There's a conversation you need to have that you're scared to death to have. There's an act of obedience that you need to do that you're scared to death to do. There's something looming in your heart that the Spirit of God is pushing you forward, but everything in you wants to shrink back. And in this moment, let the Spirit of God tell you, weak Christian, don't shrink back, but stand firm. Because God is always one step ahead of his enemies. Because God and his gospel and his mission is unstoppable. And because you can look to Jesus, who is your hero. Let's pray together. God, thank you for these brothers and sisters who have heard your word. Now we pray, Holy Spirit of God, that you would animate, empower, strengthen them for acts of obedience that are completely beyond their power. Would you help brothers and sisters, myself included, not to quit and not to fall back and not to shrink back, but to stand firm, to dig in our heels, to swing for the fences and to do what's right because we know these truths. We pray, O oh Lord, this week itself, we would not be silent, but bear witness for Jesus Christ, and that we might step up to the plate in that moment courage is required, and we might see you act in and through us. We ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen.